0: hello and welcome back to equity a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines my name is alex and i'm joined today by my friend my colleague my longtime collaborator the excellent mary ann Azevedo. hi
1: hey alex how are you today
0: you know for a yc week i'm pretty good I have survived. I have made it through the gauntlet. I'm on the other side of the chasm. I have crossed the transom and I'm not dead. You're surprisingly
1: chipper. I was expecting more of a YC hangover.
0: Well, I mean, you remember that old joke about PowerPoint poisoning when you saw too many slides and you begin to just kind of like blur and want to cry? Every YC demo day, by the end of day two, I'm like, I don't care anymore. (laughs) But like, it's so hard to get cynical when so many people who have an idea they're excited about are working on it and want to tell you about it. It's fun. Like, I fundamentally enjoy it. It's awesome. Yeah. Well, kind of a spoiler there. We are talking about YC, right. but not only that. And I'll throw in there, uh, Natasha is off. She is back next week. She has not left the podcast. She's just been a very busy person. So we will have her back in the rotation next week. So if you've missed her, fret not, she'll be back. But. Today, Marianne and I are going to walk you through quite a lot of stuff. We are going to talk about YC, some favorites, some trends, nothing too crazy. But if you didn't spend two days watching the show, we got you, Marianne. Then we're going to talk about valuations in the context of Instacart, Unicorns, and what we learned from the co-founder of EquityZen. Then gaming. I know your favorite thing. Marianne, by the way, is the source for all your Elden Ring tips and tricks. We'll also talk (laughs) about the Axie Infinity hack and then Ampverse, which is a very interesting esports company from Asia. And then, whew. We'll talk about the adaptation of social networks from the lens of Instagram, meta, and some startup news. Marianne, did I forget anything? Is that the list? I don't think
1: you got it all, Alex.
0: All right. So YC this week, a couple... I almost said a couple hundred. It's actually 400 companies. Right. I want to dig into the fintech side of things. I know, Marianne, we spend a lot of time on this show talking about fintech, but we do because it matters. And that was very evident at the YC demo day this time around because there were dozens of fintech
1: companies. Yeah, nearly three dozen to be exact. There were 35 international fintechs in this cohort. That's not including crypto companies, which even though they're technically fintech, they were under their own category. So under international fintech, what was interesting to me was the variety of countries that were represented. There was Indonesia, Vietnam, Costa Rica, which I I never hear of startups out of Costa Rica. So that was intriguing. Nigeria, of course, Kenya. Of course. So I think this kind of... Is reflective of what we've been seeing here at TC over the past year in general, like this booming fintech scenes in Africa. And now it's starting to grow even more in Asia outside of India, where we've historically seen more fintech activity.
0: Yeah, but I mean, I love the range of things that we've been seeing. So we're not just seeing a single model applied to the world. I mean, I'm just going back through this now. And the startup from mm-hmm. Costa Rica is called uh, Boten, or maybe it's Boten, one of the two. One T. I'm going to go with <laughs> Boten. That just sounds like slang, and we have a ship. Anyways, they're doing kind of a one-stop mobile investment app for Latin American consumers. And there's also some DeFi yield in here. And then there's African corporate expense companies. And Mm -hmm. it's really a wide array. I think it just goes to show why fintech is hard to cover slash maybe is too wide an umbrella for one startup category, just given the diversity of individual efforts inside of it.
1: Yeah, it's true. I mean, we saw buy now, pay later companies. We saw plenty of corporate spend, which is not surprising. Not a surprise. (laughs) Including one company that actually focused on creators, which I thought was interesting and freelancers helping them manage their expenses. So that was new. (laughs) And so, you know, embedded payments, all of it, the things again, that we are seeing reflective in FinTech currently were all represented in this cohort.
0: On the corporate spend front, here's a bit of a preview. By the time you read this, this piece will not be out because we haven't uh, finished it yet, but we will by the time this is a few days old. So check the site. There were so many companies building a Brex or Ramp or Airtable-ish company that we began to kind of collate them in their own bucket. And so there's Transfas, which is Brex for small businesses in Indonesia. There's Up Banks with an X, which is, quote, Brex for D2C brands and content creators in Indonesia, the one Marianne just mentioned. There's a capital with a K, and we're not allowed to call it DOS capital because not enough people get that joke. That's Brex for Latin America. And then there's Boya, which is Brex for Africa. And I, I actually guarantee you, Marianne, there were a few others we missed. But those are oh, the ones yeah. that we caught and wrote down.
1: Right. Yeah, I'm sure we probably missed some, but it was definitely notable. Yeah. On the trends
0: point, I wanted to go back to the crypto separation from fintech because I kind of thought there was going to be more from the Web3 crypto world. And we saw, I didn't see that many NFT marketplaces. I didn't see that many, you know, metaverse things. It almost felt kind of old school YC in this kind of hot blockchain era.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's because we were looking at a global set of companies and I feel like here crypto has just become so mainstream, but we have to remember that all over the world, it has- not. And it's still very much like this emerging thing in a lot of markets. So maybe next year, we'll see more. I think there was a total of about 25 that Lucas Matney took a look at.
0: Yeah, I think that's about right. So a good number, like not zero, but right. 25 out of 414, well, it's just lower than I expected. I mean, that's a pretty small overall percentage. It's single digits, right? Which right. is, I would have guessed 15 to 20% was kind of my mm-hmm. bias going into this, but you know, proves what I know couple of other little standout facts. India, as always, did very, very well. I think it was the second most represented country. But the thing that really caught our eye and we covered this is that Nigeria was third. Nigeria is yeah. the third most popular country for the founding location of YC companies in the winter 22 batch. And Marianne tells me two things. One, Nigeria is certainly the dominant country for startups in Africa, comma, Africa's a big deal now. Just flat out, period, big deal.
1: Yeah, I think it's the first time that Africa was in the top three, right?
0: Yes, I think it's the first time an African country made the top three country list for a number of startups in a demo <laughs> Right. It's,
1: thank you. It's for a very
0: specific <laughs> fact.
1: Yeah, I think again, it's not surprising because a lot of this we could see just based on our site. We've got Tage and Annie in Africa doing some excellent reporting. Tons coming out of Nigeria specifically, but other countries as well, Kenya, and I can't think offhand of some of the other hot. Countries there. But yeah, this is interesting. And I don't think it's some passing trend. I think it's probably something we could see again next year. Yeah. Well, I mean, next
0: year. Don't you mean later oh, this year when we right. have the I other forgot. YC demo day? Yeah. 400 companies a year. <laughs> Not enough. We need to have 800 or whatever it is. Yeah. Marianne, I was going to do a couple of favorites. How does that sound? No. So I helped. Okay, so every demo day, TC writes up a lot of coverage on the companies because it's a lot of startups and that's what we cover. And then we do some favorites. And I helped kind of put together our favorites posts. So I'm going to call out some favorites and who liked them. So if you want to just dive into a couple of picks, here's some suggestions. Christine Hall from our team, also has been on the podcast, really liked Luna Joy, which is mental health care for women. Natasha Moscarinus, you may have heard of her if you listen to Equity. She a company called Kagaz, K-A-A-G-A-Z, A G A deli-based startup to make it easier to run your business from your phone. I thought Peak Flow was cool, which is kind of build.com for Southeast Asia. And Marianne, you liked a company called DigiVentures, I think it was?
1: Yeah, DigiVentures based out of Argentina. And I was just, I was really impressed with attraction. The They've been around a few years they're trying to help banks digitize, which, you know, in Latin America, that's really ramped up over the past couple of years. So they were definitely in the right place at the right time since they started this uh, four years ago. So as soon as all these banks were like, hey, we need to get to digitizing, this company was there. And yeah. they already have, like, I think they said they're live with 30 clients, including seven banks in nine countries. So I was impressed with the traction.
0: No, yeah, no, yeah, I, I dig that. And just to close off our look at this particular YC batch, because there's so much coverage on the site, I don't want to overly index on it. My, favorite of the whole two days, and I saw probably 80% of the presentations. I had to do a meeting here and there, but I really tried to stay tuned in. was Andy, A-N-D-I. Search for the next generation is the tagline they have some cool search tech. They are kind of like, I think, taking aim at part of what Google does, which is a big market, huge TAM. And I love to see startups not dodge incumbents, but go straight for their jugular. So Andy, A-N-D-I really caught my eye. Search is cool. With that, Marianne, I think we can finally drop YC, the (laughs) accelerator, and instead talk about a YC company called Instacart.
1: Yeah, that's right. Sometimes we forget that, right?
0: It's been a while. I know you've been on the fintech side of things, so a little bit less focused on the grocery delivery service side of things. But just before we get into into what happened. What's your current read of the grocery delivery market as a consumer? Did you find it an appealing thing to use or is it mostly something that you talk about in the abstract?
1: Yeah. So honestly, I got into the grocery delivery bandwagon about six years ago and not using Instacart. The grocery store that's very popular here in Texas is called HEB. It's based here. It's one of the top grocers all over the country. So they came up with curbside pickup, six years Ah. ago. And as a mother of two who dreaded having to spend two hours going grocery shopping with a, a young child who wanted everything off the shelves, this was a godsend. And so I started doing this six years ago, way before the pandemic even started. I never really used Instacart, to be honest with you, but I know a lot more people did turn to it during the pandemic.
0: Absolutely. It was an enormous time of growth for the company. Instacart was raising what it felt like every other week. It was actually every other quarter, I think, but it felt like it was faster than that. And then the company really kind of yeah didn't grow that much last year. On one hand, Marianne, I'm like, hey, you know what? Reasonable. It grew so much in 2020. Holding on to all this 2020 growth and putting some more up in 2021 is impressive. The downside was it was valued at nearly $40 billion. And that's a valuation that demands faster growth than the company could essentially deliver last year. And I don't mean that ironically, <laughs> just I think every time we say deliver now, is going to be kind of a tinged word, but they have repriced to some degree down to $24 billion, And the conversation really here is they did this so they could better price employee, compensation in terms of equity and make it a bit more fair and reasonable and therefore better retain talent and then also maybe have a better chance at hiring the talent that they want. So kind of like an admission that things had changed at the company and in the market and it really set headlines. I mean Mary and this was everywhere.
1: Yeah, yeah it was. And I just want to be clear to make sure that we all understand. This means that employees could get shares at a lower price. Kind of. So
0: let's say, Marianne, you're joining Instacart, and I'm thinking, Marianne is going to be a great CEO. Let's pay her, let's put as part of our compensation, $100 million in stock, because Marianne's just worth it, worth every penny. (laughs) Now, at a $40 billion valuation, that would convert to a certain number of shares. But at a $24 billion valuation, it converts to a very different number of shares. In fact, a lot more equity. And so mm-hmm. if you're looking at the $40 billion price and thinking, oh gosh, are we ever going to beat this? Your equity is essentially frozen or maybe even underwater. So by Got bringing it. the valuation down through what we think is a different 409A valuation, if you want the mechanics, they essentially make it easier to offer equity that employees have more confidence in and therefore they're more likely to stay or come.
1: Okay. Appreciate the clarification. I I knew on a high level, it was something like that. But yeah, that's interesting. And I think Instacart did a good job of coming out ahead of this news and just putting itself out there and not, you know, not like waiting for someone to say, wow, Instacart really is not worth what it was last year. So from that respect, I think it did a pretty good job.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm also not proud of a company, but happy to see a company talk about hard decisions and be clear about them. Instacart's complained at me a little bit over the years for headlines and so forth. So I don't have like the closest relationship to them, but I will say in this case, I think they made the right choice. And critically, I think they set the tone yeah. because Marianne, you and I have been talking about the better.com layoffs and other startup layoffs that are starting to pop up more often. And it seems that some companies are going to have to make some hard choices this year, if it's layoffs or if it's a valuation change. And so I talked to Equities In's co-founder and chief revenue officer, Phil Haslett, and he was like, you know, Frankly, Instacart is being the kind of a trendsetter here and boldly going mm-hmm. where other companies sell shouldn't have to.
1: Yeah, I think it's a great point. I think you're right. We're definitely going to be seeing more valuation shifts in coming months. Not shocking about Instacart, really. I think it was just one of those companies that, again, boomed during the pandemic found itself struggling. Post-pandemic, it was hard to predict exactly what was going to happen in terms of consumer demand when they were going to start going in stores again. You know, it reminds me a little bit of better.com in that they over-indexed on refinancings and business was booming for a while there and then everything sort of crashed. Sounds like Instacart obviously didn't crash and burn in the way Better.com has, but certainly it saw a decline, but a decline in not, growth didn't decline, like it still grew, but at a slower rate. Isn't that right, Alex? Yeah.
0: Yeah, companies like Instacart that are posting simply enormous revenue gains as the market kind of turns towards their business model can raise just enormous amounts of money because they have so much momentum. But that evaluation isn't really set at where they were per se. It's set at where they're gonna probably be going. Yeah. And so if your growth slows from triple digits to low double digits, nothing really shakes out the way it was supposed to, and you have to make some choices. Now, this is kind of a talking point for what I'm calling paper unicorns for lack of a better phrase, but essentially companies that raise Raised a lot of money last year at a relatively high revenue multiple and are now going to have to choose between not hiring or layoffs to conserve cash, to have more time to build more, Mm -hmm. or to like take a valuation cut. I mean, I don't want to say it, but there may come a time when flat is again the new up. Yeah. But I feel like every time we say that, the market then shoots up 50 points the next day. So I don't want to, maybe I should jinx it in that case.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see how all of it plays out.
0: Yeah. I'm just curious to see if we're going to see more Instacart style repricings, or we'll see more investor-led repricings in next venture rounds, or we'll see more layoffs. Like, what's the mechanism that becomes the, the thing?
1: It might be a little bit of all three, although with your first one, I feel like not as many companies are going to be super public about it in the way that Instacart was necessarily. But, you know, last year we saw so many companies raise in quick succession with valuations, quadrupling even in some cases. Obviously, yeah, that's probably not going to be happening as often. So yeah, you could be right about the flat.
0: (laughs) Being the new up. Mm -hmm. So before we move on to the gaming world, let's circle back to fintech. Better.com fits into the fintech world, even though it's pretty much real estate tech or consumer. What the hell would you call better?
1: Yeah, I mean, it really, there's so much overlap, right? Between fintech and prop tech, but you know, it helped make the loan origination process easier and faster. And and to be clear, it did. It did at one point really do that very well. So from that respect, I still would consider it a fintech.
0: Okay. By the way, there's never been a time in history when accelerating the pace of mortgages and mortgage origination has led to any issues. So I'm glad that we have no historical overhang here to worry about. And if you're younger than 25, go look up what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Because I'm just curious about the fintech world more generally and how much trouble there might be. Because I feel like last year, it was probably the hottest space apart from crypto. And you were running around like the proverbial headless chicken trying to keep Mm -hmm. tabs of it all because it was so much. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious if there's actually more weakness in fintech than we might have otherwise expected, given that we're seeing some issues. I'm curious if they'll become kind of legion in the fintech late stage space.
1: Yeah. You know, I covered this in my column last week. You know, you helped me write the headline for that. Thank you, Alex. I do think last year was just too nuts. We all kind of figured that was not sustainable, even in the fintech world. It was just too much money going into companies, very, very early stages. So I think, you know, we're going to see fintech. Investors are going to take a little bit more measured approach and let some of these companies prove themselves. All these promises that were made last year, like, okay, now show us, show us what you can do before just writing another check. So like, let's see some real traction or, you know, I would hope that investors are going to be a little bit more, what's the word?
0: conscientious, uh, engaged,
1: yeah. <laughs> polite, yeah. more, do, more due diligence prior <laughs> ah, to writing engaged. checks. Yeah. So we'll see. I will say on a personal note, I kind of am happy that there's a little bit of a slowdown because even though my inbox is still a disaster, it's a little bit less of a disaster than it was say third or fourth quarter of last year.
0: You know how I fixed my inbox?
1: Yeah, I know. You tell everybody. Oh.
0: So I, I just didn't read email for a couple of weeks. <laughs> And now Google inbox just marks nothing as priority because I didn't read anything for so long. I trained it that all email is bad. And so now I don't see a lot of email. It's great. I finally have the inbox of my dreams. (laughs)
1: Love it.
0: Oh, All right. Let's talk about gaming. We were going to talk about gaming from a different perspective, but then something happened this week that really kind of added to this theme. And Marianne, it's the Axie Infinity Ronin Network uh, exploit, maybe, let's say, that ended up leading to a roughly $625 million decentralized finance hack. So, first of all, how much of those words made sense, and how much should I try to explain this and make a fool of myself in front of our dear friends?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think on a very high level, we can explain that this company is what you would call a crypto gaming giant. Our new reporter, Jacqueline, described it as such. Raised last year at a $3 billion valuation, Oof. and then found out like days after the fact that it had been hacked, and that users lost a lot of, what, coins, I guess, and it amounted to 624 $5 million worth. Is that? Yeah. Is that right?
0: Yeah, I'll take most of that. So <laughs> the way that I understand it, and like as long as you and I can both get to 80%, I figure we'll overlap <laughs> and get 100% of it between the two of us. Yeah. We're over our skis, but this matters. And I think it just goes to show that having passing crypto knowledge is now kind of table stakes. So here we are doing our best. Mm-hmm. Marianne, we both know the Ethereum blockchain. Mm-hmm. which is one of the biggest, most important chains out there. It used to be kind of second to Bitcoin, but now I would kind of say it's the most important, not the mm-hmm. most valuable per se, but the most used. Yeah. And it's pretty backed up most of the time. So people don't want to do transactions on the Ethereum main chain, if you will, the level one. So people build side chains, a way to kind of interact with the broader Ethereum universe without having to deal with the main thing. It's like driving on an access road next to a highway if the highway closed off because of a car crash.
1: Love your analogies, in, Alex, love them. In
0: this case, Ethereum though is the access road and the side chains are actually the highway. <laughs> <laughs> and so you have to bridge this stuff. You have to have a way to go from one road to the other. You can't just have your car teleport. You have to have, you know, some sort of bridgey bit between the access road and the highway. Those are called bridges, shockingly enough. And they are apparently something that people can hack. And so the company behind Axie Infinity discovered that they had a problem when they had a report from a user they were trying to pull some ETH out of the bridge and it didn't work because there wasn't any because it had all been taken. And it ended up being 173,600 ether and 25.5 million of the stablecoin USDC making at the largest DeFi hack today. So essentially, the technology that makes Main chains more palatable for other companies have some structural current cybersecurity issues that are pretty bad. Yeah. Is my read of this. Like, it's not good.
1: Yeah. I mean, pretty bad is an understatement, in my opinion. And I think this actually is not good for the world of crypto because I think it points out that there are still, it's being decentralized appeals to a lot of people, but that also can be a negative. And so this kind of think it probably happened more often. And from what I understand, like the users are going to get what they lost back, but the company's probably going to have to eat those costs. That's a lot of money to have, or, you know, yeah, I'm not, I don't know what to call it anymore. You can call it
0: money is good, stored, yeah. stored value. You can pick a different unit of measure, if you will. But yeah, it's a lot of money. I mean, flat out, because let's say that, and I don't know that this is true, so I'm speculating here, but let's say that Axie has to essentially pay up the lost amount of funds as people try to remove money and kind of move between their side chain and the main ETH net. well do they have to pay out $600 million and if so can they and then if so at what pace and what does that do to their business model and so I don't know if they can Do they have that kind of money? It's a lot of money. Even for a crypto startup, it's a lot of money.
1: It it could potentially be devastating for a company. Maybe not this one, but it's still a huge hit. And, you know, I think the big question is how can you avoid this from happening in the future?
0: Yeah. But we are not only going to talk about one play-to-earn company today. There's, in fact, more of them. And another kind of lens into how the gaming world is changing is a company called Ampverse. It's Singapore-based, esports startup, just raised a $12 million Series A, Marianne. But it took me a while to actually figure out what it did. And I'm curious if you had a similar sort of like, what does this company actually do moment?
1: Yeah, I did. And I think what we came to was that it lets players earn rewards by playing games and then get training from pro esports people.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's a kind of a mix of like play to earn pros, play to earn support, maybe traditional esports and some other stuff. Okay, maybe that's the future, but it was a surprise to me to see in an esports headline a startup that had this much of a footprint into the play to earn world, which is where Axie Infinity and a lot of other crypto games sit. And so it was kind of to me like watching the crypto world creep its way into my world because I've been an esports dweeb for a thousand million years. And so I was kind of surprised to see this, frankly. Like it took me a little bit. I was shocked.
1: Yeah, this company is based in Singapore, which I think this was. Wasn't this like the largest? What Catherine, she wrote this and she said it was the largest Series A raised by an esports organization in Southeast Asia, according to like pitchbook data. So that's that's notable as well.
0: That's a very specific stat. <laughs> I have raised the largest pre seed round of any person named Alex inside of Providence, Rhode Island. I gave myself five dollars. <laughs> It's a $12 million Series A. And let's not over-index on how big it was. As far as A's go, that's middle or median or whatever. But I mean, it's the company's makeup that surprised me. It's diversified for such a small firm.
1: Mm-hmm. And well, also, I mean, that's a lot of money for probably that region and this category still. Here, we've been talking about esports for how long now, Alex? I remember Crunch Crunchbase News, we used to write about it four years ago, and yeah. it was kind of newish at that time. And it was like, oh my God, wow, people can get paid to play video games. This is just... Mind-blowing concept! And here, now in the U.S., this has become much more mainstream and sort of just accepted and people get scholarships now for esports, can go to college on an esports scholarship. Again, other parts of the world, it's probably taken longer for esports to become as popular
0: well, the question really becomes like, where in Asia does it have the biggest Because We know that China and South Korea are enormous gaming markets. Well, China was until the recent changes in their gaming rules for minors. Mm-hmm. But essentially, we're seeing a lot of funny sports stuff. Don't forget that MetaFi raised $25 million earlier this year from Tiger. That's a gaming coaching platform for serious amateurs, but not pros. So there's so many models, so many methods. If you're into gaming, it's a great time to be a gamer. There's a lot of good games out there. There's eSports. It's kind of like we're feasting, is my read.
1: Yeah, and just really quickly on one of the things you said, Catherine quotes her source, the founder of this company, saying that Indonesia is the largest gaming market in Southeast Asia and that in Philippines, actually, the number has grown almost 13% in recent years. So That's a lot. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, more evidence of how big and culturally important gaming is, not just domestically to where you and I live, but really everywhere. I mean... As people go online, they can compete in digital games. And it seems to be a, a pretty big deal. Yeah. We have one last thing to talk about. And it's my favorite thing because nothing makes me happier than talking about Elon Musk. He is my, I'm trying to find some polite way of not getting in trouble. Elon Musk is a human that I'm familiar with. There you go. <laughs> what, what has he done now, Marianne?
1: Well, he kind of hinted that he wanted to start his own social network, which had a lot of people freaked out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine the all Elon social network? I'm just imagining him and Grimes just like reading into like a voice recorder, having their tweets transcribed. Mm -hmm. Elon made an interesting argument here and he kind of said Twitter is the town square and it's censoring people. And so we need to go off and make our own, which is a little rich from a company with a litigious history. You might say Marianne about
1: things. I think it's also interesting because he has what, like 70 some million followers on Twitter. He tweets all the time, lots of controversial things. So. Amanda, who wrote a piece on this topic, was actually quite funny, and and her headline kind of sums it up, Don't Lose Sleep Over Elon Musk's Desire to Build the Next Twitter. Yeah. We
0: have historically seen people struggle when they go out Mm -hmm. to build their own social network because it's very, very hard to do. Former American President Donald Trump is trying this, failing. Yeah. And I think what Twitter has that people don't take into account is Twitter has a lot of people who don't agree with modern American right-wing politics. And so if you are someone who likes to, quote, troll the libs, and then you go to Getter or Truth Social, there's no one for whom you control. You're all trolled out and it doesn't really appeal. Like if Elon goes on elon.social.musk or whatever and posts, all he's going to get is like his fanboy's face. I don't know. Is that what you want? Is that really the thing?
1: Yeah, I agree. You know, in general, social networking, it's a hard thing to do, right? Like, look, even companies that have been doing it for years are looking for new ways to keep users engaged and retain them and compete against other social networks, right? And we saw that in some other headlines this week.
0: I will grab that segue and take it the rest of the way. And we're <laughs> thinking about Instagram's latest test that's gonna make it easier to support social movements through hashtags. There has actually been a really long history of Facebook properties doing things that a lot of people 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 to mention social, not phenomena, but like social efforts. Like I I remember back on facebook.com a thousand years ago, there was a very popular app when they first opened the ability to build on Facebook where you could like pick a thing and promote it on your profile and kind of support a social,
1: social cause. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So Instagram, I feel like it's kind of following those footsteps. We know that they're a little worried about, Some competitors. And so I think as Instagram looks to kind of retain its user base, Facebook's broader corporate structure is kind of worried. Mm -hmm. We learned this week that Facebook paid a company, what's the name of this? Targeted victory to, quote, orchestrate a nationwide campaign seeking to turn the public against TikTok. I don't know if I can improve on that. It's one of the funniest things I've ever read. Facebook, it turns out, is the company you thought it was and has the moral fortitude of a tapeworm.
1: Yeah, I mean, this story was just kind of made jaws drop everywhere, right? I think the campaign included things like getting op-eds and letters placed in newspapers all over the country, just promoting dubious stories about alleged TikTok trends that originated on Facebook. Right. Things like that.
0: Here's a question that I have. Do people just not have like a moral compass? Like, do they just not care when they're being hypocritical and horrible? Because like, I feel like I would feel bad. Like I would be like, huh, <laughs> here I am trying to turf." Slander, not in the legal sense, I mean, that just the definitional English sense, against TikTok for stuff that we did.
1: Like, how do you go to bed at night and be like, I'm a good person? There's no conscious, clearly. I mean, there's a quote, Washington Post that that broke this. The dream would be to get stories with headlines like, From Dances to Danger, how TikTok has become the most harmful social media space for kids. Let's make sure we should point out that Facebook has been losing younger users pretty dramatically right over the past couple of years.
0: Well, yeah, that's because Facebook has become essentially a Florida retirement community and Instagram has become some sort of like 2016 version of influencers from LA. <laughs> boring, like f***ing boring. Who gives a shit? Yeah. Uh, WhatsApp is still pretty good, but that's not where the money comes from. And so TikTok rolled in with a much better experience. And I think the ability to drive culture because TikTok mm-hmm. has led to music becoming popular, dances becoming popular, center of the spotlight. It's how it feels.
1: Yeah, I mean, and you know, I'm going to say this. I hesitate almost to say it because I don't want in any shape, way, or form to defend anything that Facebook has done or Meta has done here because <laughs> I don't. Like, I, can't I don't support or condone next. it. But I did read a pretty horrific article the other day that maybe was placed by targeted victory somewhere yeah. about a kid who like set himself on fire based on a video he saw on TikTok. Well, you know, these things are going to happen. Kids are going to be dumb all over the world, not to, you know, that sounds mean that I'm calling this kid dumb, but like doing a dumb thing rather. So, you know, I can't say this is necessarily TikTok's fault, but surely there is some questionable stuff that does take place on there. So not diminishing that is highly entertaining to people of all ages, because it is, but like maybe it can also do a little bit better on some things.
0: Sure. But like I did dumb things when I was a teen. We didn't even need TikTok. We just (laughs) thought it up. You know, <laughs> did I mean, you just, just didn't video t-
1: did you set yourself on fire though? Alex? We
0: did once make a cannon and my brother did blow him his eyebrows off with a <laughs> pile of black powder in our back driveway. I grew up next to cows. So we had a gun safe and you know, like we could take guns out in the morning and go rabbit hunting. I had a different childhood from a lot of folks in the tech world. Yeah. yeah. So no one got shot with anything other than paintball guns. It was fine. Yeah, it was, it was all good.
1: No, no, no. I, I'm not trying to sound like, you know, oh, TikTok is bad. I'm not saying that. I actually, like okay. I said, I know many people who love it or are highly entertained by it, even in my age group and younger. Yeah, Not at all. I mean, I think what your earlier point really just hit the nail on the head. This coming out just kind of confirms everything that most of us have thought about Facebook and Meta and what it's doing behind the scenes. And it's just a very underhanded way to stay competitive. And to me, it shows how insecure the company is about its standing as a social network that it had to resort to something like this.
0: Well, the thing that Facebook has had is completeness, right? Everyone was on there. And then suddenly they began to lose users. And now they're starting to lose their core value prop. But here's some numbers, just to kind of put this in perspective. Today, according to Google Finance, Facebook is worth, sorry, meta platforms is worth $610 billion, plus or minus $100 Today, Tesla, going back to our dear friend Elon from earlier in the show, 1.13 trillion, which means that Tesla is now worth nearly two Facebooks. That is a inversion of a couple of years ago, I think, yeah. if I'm doing the math correctly in my head.
1: That's crazy. And it
0: goes to show not only how far Tesla has gone, but also how far Meta has fallen. And a lot of the folks that were defending Zuckerberg's tenure at the company for years because they made them money have some explaining to do, I think. So. Agreed. All right, we should shut up. We've been going on for a while. I don't. I don't know how far in we are.
1: This has been
0: fun. It has been fun. If you see a TikTok story about how people are huffing paint cans or something, just don't forget one. We've all done that. Two. We don't need TikTok. And three. It's probably a Facebook plant. And uh, with that, Marianne, we'll be back Monday morning. Yeah.
1: See y'all next week.
0: Don't huff paint.